I started working at ML at, at Columbia, and then I was asking the other kind of PhD grad students, like, how do you, what tools do you use? What does your process look like? This was completely new for me. And they didn't have much. And I assume, you know, I, I attributed to just being in academia. And then when working on GroupRise, Nimrod kept kind of criticizing in a fine way. Was like, this is the tools you use. This is how you run your process. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And then when I joined Google, I realized it's the exactly same thing even there, right? And this was a few years ago. They definitely kind of advanced since. But a lot of these machine learning teams look like what software engineering teams look like 10 or 15 years ago. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Brains Behind AI, show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Brains Behind AI. My name is Natalie, and I'm here with the main host, Ari. And today we have a special episode. Today, our guest is Gideon Mendels, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Comet ML, a leading provider of machine learning operations solutions that accelerate getting machine learning models into production. Before Comet ML, Gideon founded GroupWise, where they trained and deployed over 50 natural language processing models on 15 different languages. His journey with NLP and speech recognition models began at Columbia University and also Google, where he worked on hate speech and deception detection. Gideon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Natalie. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Gideon, you have an impressive background. I think we can do a show just exclusively focused on natural language processing (laughs) and hate speech, given its importance in social media today. But before we sort of dive into it, your background is very, very impressive. We have Google and the number of natural language processing applications you've worked on. So for our audience, can you take us through your personal journey on what got you interested in AI and machine learning and how you've sort of made your way into machine learning? And then we can go into the work that got you excited. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much. I'm, again, super excited to be here. My path, I think, is, is similar to what a lot of people who are currently in machine learning went through. So I started my career as a software engineer about 15 or 16 years ago. And then I went to grad school and, and I actually got into machine learning because I was trying to solve a problem that I couldn't solve with a traditional if statement or a regular expression. So specifically, I was working on a research project and we were trying to collect data in low resource languages to build uh, speech recognition models. And uh, I built a system that collected the data, but it was tricky to identify uh, what language it's in. And originally, like thinking like a software engineer, I started to put keywords and if statements. And then through that journey, I learned about natural language processing and language identification and built my first model, my first classifier, which was a language identifier. And that's kind of like how I got started. And I think a lot of software engineers go through that path as well, where they just stumble into a problem that's hard to solve with traditional software. But yeah, I'm happy to share more. I mean, you know, after after my work at Columbia, I got really excited about machine learning, specifically natural language processing. And, and I was doing research there for a few years. 
And then Nimrod, who is currently my co-founder at Common and I, built chat analytics app. It's called Groupwise that Natalie kind of mentioned. And it started as a side fund project. Our idea was there's these active group chats on WhatsApp and Viber and Line and GroupMe, and there's so much going on there. Our idea was to try to like collect that data and analyze and bring, bring interesting metrics and entertaining metrics to our users, so, such as within a group chat, who talks most about sports, who's the funniest, who are the best friends. And we started building that from scratch really as a side project. And when we released it, it blew up like very quickly. It hit 80,000 users the first week, completely organic just by people downloading it, taking screenshots of the metrics and sharing it to the next group. But that was really my first experience in like deploying these models in production and what does that mean? But I'm happy to go uh, and share more details, of course. Yeah, no, that's, that's impressive. Is that what led you to Google? How did you sort of ended up at Google and what did you do there? Just curious. My experience with natural language processing and it definitely kind of got me closer there. If originally I thought I'll you know, have a career in software after working on at Columbia and in GroupWise. I'm super excited about that. And then I joined a team at Google that was working on hate speech detection and YouTube comments. So I think now traditionally that's part of the YouTube organization, but at the time it was part of what's called the abuse organization. So fighting abuse across all Google products. Um, and specifically, my team was working on reducing the hate speech on YouTube comments, which is for everyone who uses YouTube know how hard that is. There's just quite a lot of it. So yeah, so I worked on that there. The team already had them all in production when I came in and kind of part of my work was to try to improve it. And I brought a lot of experience with document classification, which is essentially the the technical term for hate speech detection. That's what you're trying to do. And that was a huge learning for me, both from like a machine learning scientific perspective. But really, more than anything, and just like, what does it mean to build these products and projects within a large organization and in that kind of scale? That's amazing. That's absolutely impressive. Now, sort of going from Google into sort of finding your own startup, can you tell us what's got you thinking about building Comet and how did that idea happen? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I mentioned I started working on ML at, at Columbia and then I was asking the other kind of PhD grad students, like, how do you, what tools do you use? What does your process look like? This was completely new for me. And they didn't have much. And I assume, you know, I attributed to just being in academia. And then when working on GroupRise, Nimrod kept kind of criticizing in a fun way. It was like, this is the tools you use. This is how you run your process. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And then when I joined Google, I realized it's the exactly same thing even there, right? And this was a few years ago. They definitely kind of advanced since. But a lot of these machine learning teams look like what software engineering teams look like 10 or 15 years ago, right? So in the software world, we have this amazing stack, databases, testing, monitoring, CI, CD, like each one, like a billion dollar industry at least. But then you go to machine learning teams and they're emailing Jupyter notebooks to each other. And from my experience at Google, that really, really slowed us down because essentially what happened without going like too much into detail is the team has been pursuing like a research avenue for almost six months that turned out to be completely wrong. And it's all because there was no system of records. So everyone assumed someone checked something and they didn't. I mean, it's coming from Google, you know, arguably the company with the best developer practices in the world. That was very surprising. So after I witnessed it there, I called Nimrod and I said, hey, this is, I'm at Google. It's exactly the same thing we witnessed. We really got to fix this. And that's kind of like how we started Comet. No, that's really interesting. And how did you come up with your name for Comet? That's a fun story. So we went through the process and I can get 
into that a little bit later, but how do we get to the exact notion of what Comet is? So we, at first we didn't like, we were kind of testing a few things and then we, we eventually kind of landed on that. We were looking for a name. There's a lot of tools and, and solutions in the machine learning world that kind of use names barred from like space. You have Jupyter notebooks, right? And things like that. So Comet.ai was, the domain was available. Long story short, we're not Comet.ml, but that's essentially, it wasn't like this crazy brainstorming session or anything like that. We're more focused on the product rather than the name. So you, you talked to your partner, you saw some inefficiencies in how the, the operations is around machine learning and data scientists working the old-fashioned way. Where did you go from there? Did you build a POC with your co-founder? How did you approach the first yes. step? So, you know, I, I felt the pain myself as like the end user of this product, but there was a lot of there was a lot of pain points. It wasn't just what we're solving today, right? And there still are, by the way. And our approach was like, we didn't know at the start what's the exact solution, right? What do we need to do? And there's a lot of factors to it. So after lots of kind of, so we interviewed over, I think, 150 data scientists, just asking them about their workflow. How do you do things? How do you track them? How do you deploy? Really all the questions that cover the entire workflow. And there was definitely kind of a few themes that came out of that. But after all this kind of research work, we were still left with two similar products, kind of very same vision, but like similar different variations of the same product. And we weren't sure which one is the right one to go to market with. So we, had, we actually tested that. So we bought two domains. It was trackml.com and gatherml.com. We built two landing pages of these products. So just UI, nothing, no real product, just mockups. Um, and we drove traffic to these landing pages. Um, and we just essentially A-B tested it. And after the A-B test, it was very clear that was, I think at the time it was TrackML that was the, the better variation. And that essentially turned out to what Comet is today. And what was TrackML? What was that page? Yeah. So TrackML, it was, it was just mock-ups of essentially what a very, very, very early version of Comet. It was more focused on managing experimentation and tracking experimentation where GatherML was more focused on, I would say, more kind of like the collaboration, the sharing of things, uh, both parts of the product today, but it was more emphasized on GatherML. So for our audience, can you describe in simple terms, what is Comet ML? What, what does your product, your platform and a company does? Definitely. So we provide a machine learning platform, right? So it could be self-hosted by the customer or cloud-based where we host it. And essentially, we work with data scientists and data science teams, and our platform allows them to kind of track, compare, explain, and optimize their experiments and models. So we solve problems around reproducibility of being able to create the same experiment and model the second time, collaboration of this team, and really just the productivity and being able to help these teams get to production with a successful model faster. We're completely like agnostic to the underlying use case because we're a code-first platform. So we support you know, some of the best and biggest machine learning teams in the world and in healthcare and tech and media and finance. You know, just to name a few, we work with Google, with Ancestry, National Institute of Health, Etsy, Zappos, a lot of these companies. And they use Comet as their essentially their main uh, development platform to build these models. Got it. So I guess your first use case was, can we reproduce our experiments? Right. I'm sure since then you've sort of grown into other things and have added more. So when you build that out, did you look around to see if there's anyone else who's trying to solve the same problem or building a similar application? Definitely. We've done a lot of market research at the time. And essentially what, what, what existed back then is you had 
companies, startups that essentially try to solve all the problems in the machine learning workflow, right? So experimentation management, model management, orchestration, deployment, monitoring. And we looked at these companies and we said, like, that is too much scope for one software company to build, right? It's like if you go to a software engineer and say, hey, here's a web login and it's going to replace GitHub, AWS, Circle CI, Datadog. It just seems very unreasonable, right? And at the time, that was early, so it made sense for these companies. But when we looked at it, we said, okay, they're doing part of what we want to do, but they also do a million other things. So we're going to do one thing and we're going to do it better than anyone else. So that was our approach and still is. Essentially, we bet it on best of breeds versus end-to-end. You just mentioned something that's so important because one thing I have seen that differentiates a successful startup from a startup that's not successful is focusing, focus on one thing and doing that one thing 10x better than anyone else out there. What I've seen, the ones that are not successful get into, even the one, even if they're somewhat successful, right? It's, it's, it ends up becoming mediocre if they try to solve the whole supply chain around the problem instead of solving on one problem and focusing on that. That's a great point. And I think great learning that our listeners can take from here is just focus on one thing. And it doesn't matter how small niche focus that one thing is, if you can do it 10x better and scale, then then just do that. That's an excellent point. I really like that. Yeah, no, that's a definitely a great point, Ari. And I wanted to ask, so it's, it seems like as you were in Google and maybe transitioning out and beginning and building your own company, you had a pretty clear vision of where you were heading, your niche market. Did you experience, though, any challenges as you were developing Comet ML? We experience challenges on a daily basis, right? It's never easy. There's just, you know, there's many, many challenges across the board, right? Product, marketing, sales. Is there anything specific that you're interested about? A a specific period that's been, I mean, like Ari said earlier, like building a startup is never a smooth sale. It's constant challenges and learnings. So I'm happy to go into details, but there's just so so many, right? (laughs) I think your biggest challenge that you've experienced from leaving Google, maybe more of a You had your job, you had that security to diving into your own business and really developing a team and, you know, growing and expanding. What has been like a big challenge in really embarking on that process and journey? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges, and I think that's natural, was, you know, finding product market fit. And we are slightly different, I think, than a lot of other startups. I think a lot of startups are trying to disrupt an existing industry, right? They come in and say, this, this is inefficient. This is, you know, these big companies are trying to do it the wrong way. We're going to come in and make it like, you know, much better, like Uber uh, disrupting the taxi industry, right? But we operate in a nascent market. So it's, we're really growing with the market and things are shifting and changing by the day. We're not replacing legacy systems. We're, we're building literally software for teams that have been you know, hired a year or two years ago. So from that perspective, as you're, you know, you think from the, from, from a product market fits perspective, you want to be able to, A, of course, build a product that people are happy about and will be willing to pay money for. But you have to think ahead because the market is shifting all the time. And if you solve their pain point today and that pain point is not going to exist in a year because some of the other market dynamics are changing, that's obviously a huge risk. So that was super tricky. And that goes back to what Ari mentioned of like being focused. And it takes so much discipline, right? Because you go speak to these teams that are very early and they say, 
you know, I definitely have that pain point that you're solving around experimentation management and tracking and visibility, but I also have like these five others. And if you build that, I will pay you a lot of money, right? But again, that's where the discipline piece comes in, where you have to say, I will pass on that opportunity right now, because I know in the long term, if I will build all these things, there's no way I'll be able to stay competitive. Does that make sense? Yep. On, on those lines, right? When you have your, say, minimum viable product built, how did you go to market? Did you go to one specific client and say, let's just start with that one? Did you have an industry focus? How did you break into the market? And what was that market? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, things have shifted since we started, but originally we just essentially launched it. I mean, we built a SaaS product. We gave everyone access with sign up. It wasn't behind a, a demo sign up link or anything like that. You could have just signed up and started using the product. We announced our kind of first fundraise with it and we continued to drive traffic into the website. So people had access to it from like the very, very early days. And quite frankly, we shipped a product that it, it wasn't mature enough to be shipped, right? And I think I think that's the right, the right decision. I'm just saying like, there was definitely a lot of people that signed up and say, hey, like, I like the idea, but like, there's like 10 things that are not working as the way I expect them to, right? And since then, that's just how we kind of drove our roadmap and improved the product based on that feedback. So we are very lucky that even though we're much more enterprise focused today, we have this huge community now over 15,000 data scientists using the product that give us continuous feedback. But really our original go-to-market was like, put it out there, make some noise and announce it on kind of all the different platforms, social media, Hacker News, Reddit. TechCrunch and so on. And that was the, kind of like the original approach. Since then, of course, things have shifted. Yeah. So it seems like it was more grassroots where you build a good product for data scientists and you got the word out to the data scientists and they started using it. There Definitely. was no sort of an industry focus or you said, let's knock at these clients' doors and see if we can get their data scientists on. We did talk to clients through introduction and such, but the really, yeah, the, the main focus was the grassroots focus. But what was interesting is very quickly, as in like a week after we launched a product, we would get emails from data scientists and machine learning engineers working in very big companies saying like, hey, I, just, I signed up. I love this thing. Can you demo this to my manager? Can, can you demo this to my team? And that's how we essentially got pulled into the kind of like a, the enterprise customers that we have. So even today, over 90% of our enterprise customers started as community users. That is essentially has been our funnel sense. So speaking of that, right, I just want to get an understanding of how your market has evolved because it's, you, and you touched on it earlier, right? You, you got into an industry, you got into uh, that, that was just in its very, very early stages, right? And it's shaping and evolving very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I want to get a sense of how your market has evolved. And then as a result, how your product has evolved to meet that. Yeah. So again, when we started, it was really all these end-to-end solutions. And often when we go and speak to these larger companies, we say, well, look, we like what you're doing and we think you're better, but these guys are doing all these 10 other things for us. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for us. Right. But we, again, we stay disciplined and and stuck to our vision that it it will become a best of breeds market. And over the last, you know, three years, that's essentially what's happened, right? Where you see there's, there's many other companies and startups in adjacent spaces, whether it's like data set management or orchestration or deployment, and they are coming with their 10x solution, right? So that, that was the biggest shift of the market where we're seeing companies adopt 
best of breeds versus end to end. That that would say was the biggest the, the biggest change. Another thing that kind of shifted is I think originally we were working and seeing a lot of these POC use cases of AI, right? Machine learning center of excellence, innovation centers, just playing around, building models, trying to figure out what can they do with that. But more recently, and the, and this is very industry dependent, right? There's some industry that have been ahead, but more recently we're seeing like real models that bring real business value. And when you work with these teams, their requirements are not identical to the innovation center or the grad student, right? There's definitely things that are shared, but their focus on bringing business value and, and therefore there's a lot of things that are, are different, right? Whether it's understanding the model results so you can explain it to a, to a business uh, stakeholder. It's about lineage and understanding the entire life cycle so you can answer a question if something goes wrong and really being able to move faster and deploy these models fairly quickly rather than like a grad student that writes a paper, build the last model, releases the paper, and probably doesn't touch it ever again. Is there a specific industry that uses your product the most like since you started Comet? So we're, we're pretty agnostic. I mean, we do have customers mm-hmm. across industries. Another way to think about it is not industry-wise, but use case-wise. So we definitely see more deep learning use cases. So computer vision, natural language processing, speech recognition, robotics. But we also, you know, we, we do have you know, people working in traditional ML with tabular data. So I would say like, you know, a big chunk of our customers are in the more advanced use cases of deep learning. But again, like financial services, tech, media, healthcare, like very, very agnostic. And you know, I think that surprises people, you know, speaking about focus, but when you think about the software engineering world, right, software is software. Honestly, it doesn't matter if you're using GitHub to version, you know, space shuttle code or a web app, web app code. It's code, right? So that's how we view it. That's very interesting. I'm going to ask you about sort of, because I've seen some products out there in marketplace as a data scientist myself, right? There is Domino Data Labs. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And they they try to do a lot of things from helping you manage infrastructure to collaboration and model management. I just want to get a sense of how you complement them or where there's an overlap. How how do you fit in in that big data science lifecycle management? Yeah, so that's a great example. So what we started, the two players that are out there were end-to-end. It was Domino Data Labs and Data IQ, right? So Domino was really that uh, company that I was referring to earlier where they're doing a lot of things, right? So Domino will manage your orchestration, your data pipelines, your data warehouse, your experimentation, your productionization, your monitoring, some dashboards, and now Spark clusters, right? And I think that's a great fit for some companies, usually those that don't have any technical knowledge within the company. So, but you know, our focus is, like I said, we don't do all of these things, right? So we focus on experimentation management, our visibility, collaboration, explaining these models, understanding why one model is better than the other, like way, way deeper into the modeling process, where I think, you know, some of these other companies are tracking basic metrics and hyperparameters, but we don't do everything they do. So we actually have quite a few customers that are shared with these other companies. And typically, like they just use it on top of Domino, where kind of Domino is the underlying DevOps. So orchestration and CI/CD, and if they're into like deep modeling, they use Comet for for these use cases. Interesting. No, that's that's actually a really sort of a good fit because I felt that was sort of one thing that's the missing, or at least not at the level at which Comet is doing. That's awesome. Now, as you look at the future of uh, Comet, and as you think about where you're going to be, say three to five years from now, 
How do you see your company evolving? What is that vision? Yeah, definitely. So like, look, we thrive to be the de facto operating system for machine learning you know, within enterprise and really helping our customers to bring the business value with AI. So we're very much focused on these uh, business-driven machine learning teams rather than these grad students and, and center of excellence. And by the way, we, we love these guys. We give them the product for free, but that's not our focus in the future. So really like another way of think about it, you know how you walk into a, a room of, of software engineers, there's usually like a TV showing your build system and another TV showing your uh, servers in production. So, you know, our vision really is like within a few years, we're going to have another TV right next to it, showing your experiments, showing your models, first will be driven by comments. So still working on the TV view, but hopefully after we all go back to the office, they'll be out there. No, that's great. And do you have any advice for industry leaders today? Industry leaders in machine learning? Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think one of the biggest open questions we have as an industry is where does the machine learning and data science team organization fit in the larger organization or like the, the larger enterprise, right? And we've seen across our customers very different ways to do that. Sometimes it's almost like an internal consultancy giving services. Sometimes it's every team have a couple data scientists. Sometimes it's part of the product team. And I think that's the biggest thing we have to figure out because we have this amazing tool set that can bring insane value, insane. Like we've seen with some of our customers like pushing revenue and I'm talking about billions of dollars with a few percent points with a single model. It's like amazing, right? Self-driving cars. There's just like amazing things out there. So I think the biggest question for us is how do we put the, the data science, the person that knows what's possible with AI and the business, the business stakeholder to understand what needs to be solved and find that intersection, right? Of these problems that are important and solvable with AI. So that's one of the biggest questions and something we're thinking about like a lot in the comment and trying to figure out how the product can help to do that. But it's definitely still an open question. Yeah. That's, you make a good point. And since you're about machine learning ops, let me ask you more of a business operating model question around data science and machine learning. I've seen a couple of different scenarios, right? I've seen where data science is done in silo, where each business function has their own set of data scientists working within. And then I've seen those, what you call the center of excellence and innovation centers, where all of the data science is centralized. As you look at the what's working and what's successful, especially given your exposure to companies that have models in production that with real value from an operating model standpoint, is there a model that you think works? What is the, the optimum here? Yeah, definitely. So I would say that typically when we see this like center of excellence that's trying to give services to different teams that except in financial services where it's a little bit different we haven't seen that model super successful. So where, where it is successful is one of the options that you mentioned where the data scientists are part of the, part of the group, right? So part of the, the business team. Another option is where, where they're really like part of the product team. And, and it really depends on the industry, right? If you're trying to predict churn or, or forecast uh, uh, revenue or something like that, then it doesn't make sense. But if you're working on a product, then it's very important to keep that machine learning team within the product. But the thing that matters the most is having, whether it's a product manager that owns it, whether it's like, you know, the CEO, having them sitting in the same table as the person that knows what's doable with machine learning. Yeah. No, that makes sense, right? And again, it's very consistent with what I've learned doing this as well. What works as you think about standardizing and centralizing, right, would be the tools, best practices, 
that you probably want to bring in a central place and it manage it across the enterprise while have the machine learning be business function specific and closer to the business uh, yeah. or the product, right? Whatever they are. Definitely. So from a, from a tooling and platform perspective, definitely. So like a centralized platform or solution works the best that we've seen that over and over, right? Yeah. And, and there's a few reasons to that. One is like you can share a lot of knowledge, right? So if, if team A is working on a modeling problem and they develop a bunch of features, team B can use that as well, even if they're working on a very different task. And it's just like, I think it's crazy like that we spend so many efforts and so many cycles and research and building these models and and, and a lot of these companies that lives on someone's like personal computer, right? And it's never shared. No one has access to it. And, and, you know, God forbid if that person leaves, all that knowledge is erased. So having a standard system of record is almost like the first step you have to make in order to be successful with AI. Yeah. No. And for that reason, I like your enterprise solutions because you're giving them, uh, call it the music sheet that can be used across the organization and do experimentation and tracing and management in a consistent fashion while each business can be specific to to the models they're building. Definitely. I mean, I think the, the, the first layer is a system of record and that's critical. You just, it's very hard to make progress without it. But one, one, one thing we realized is once we had that and we had all the data stored in a very organized way, we built this another layer of insights on top of it, right? So it's not only just storing and tracking, but it's really giving you the insights of why, you know, why one model is better than the other. What should you try next in your research project? What, if there's any issues in the modeling process, you pick the wrong metric, you're looking at like distribution in the wrong way. There's a lot of pitfalls, right? So re- reducing the risk there is a big part of it. And then once you have that, you can also collaborate. So I can send you like a link to my experiment, say, hey, Ari, look at this. I got this result. What do you think about that? And then when you land into that page, you have full context. Like you see everything I've done, where the data came from, which parameters, which model, which algorithm, all the results. So just like extremely, like, you know, significantly more productive than just setting up a meeting every time. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. How big are you as a company now? How, what is the size? Yes, yeah, so we're about 20 people now and we're growing uh, very rapidly. Um, we're expecting to double this year. We've been hiring very aggressively as part of just our kind of like natural growth. So we have a lot of open position across the organization, go-to-market, engineering, product, you name it. So Awesome. We'll let our audience visit your website if you have them listed. Definitely, um, definitely. So as we sort of get to the closing of this episode, right, I want to understand, given your experience building a successful machine learning product and, and then putting it out in the marketplace, what are some of the key learnings that you had as an entrepreneur that, that our, our listeners can benefit from the future aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, definitely. So I think I'll split my answer to two. When you think about like building a machine learning product or model uh, per se, and that's, I guess, more for like the enterprise people out there is like, we always just take a portfolio approach. You don't know which model is going to work and which you know subset of the data has enough signal in it. So pick three or four different problems. Quickly iterate, try to model something quickly and see where you get value and then pursue that rather than spending a year or two just going one way, which might be a dead end. So that's in general about ML. And I think generally with startups, it really comes down to the people. It really comes down to the people. So we originally last first two years, we hired very, very slowly. It was very important for us to bring the right people. And that is a decision that 
paid off significantly because you might be, you know, it might feel like you're moving a little bit slower in the start, but once you do build that core team, you start accelerating very, very fast. So do not, in, in no circumstance, compromise on the quality of the people that you bring to your team because they will like make all the difference. That's a great advice. All right, Natalie, any other questions you have? Yeah, I have um, one last question. So going back to like personally on your journey and starting a company, have you had to like really go more inwards and like shift your mindset? And because I'm sure, you know, starting your own business is a lot of pressure. There's a lot, there's all those ups and downs. And how do you manage that personally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a huge part of it. And even though Common is not my first business, it's still a huge part of it. So that's one thing I, I didn't force people tell you startups is hard. And but you I, I don't think I understood before that what what is necessarily hard about it, right? And it's not about, you know, pro- finding product market fit, hiring, all that stuff is hard. But it's really about, like you said, handling these ups and downs, the, the, the pressure, the stress. And, you know, everyone has their own way of, of, of managing that. Personally, for me, it's physical activity, just running. Meditation has been a huge part of it. Huge mindfulness in general, just a huge helper. It's almost like this entire toolkit that's been opened up to you and it's, it works very well. And also like learning to disconnect, right? Not it's, it's a marathon. You can't work 15 hours a day and every weekend, it's just not sustainable. So being able to disconnect, putting Slack away, putting your phone away for a few hours, it's, it's just, yeah, it's very important. Yeah, that's valuable information. It's finding really, really finding that personal and work-life balance. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, great advice indeed. All right. Hey, this was super informational, uh, Gideon. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. And I know you're a very, very busy guy. So really, really appreciate you coming on and then talking to us and sharing your experience and learnings. Much appreciated. Definitely. All right. Thank you. And Natalie, thank you so much for having me. This was I really enjoyed this. And I think you guys are working on something super important because just sharing that knowledge across entrepreneurs, across startups, it's, I think, something the industry deeply needs. So thank you so much for inviting me and, and I'm honored to be here. And yeah, looking forward to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, Visit us online at brainedbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.